morning. Uh, let's start with a thought exercise uh, this morning. Would you say that it's reasonable to believe in God? Now, I have a, a friendly audience here. We're in a church, right? And so I'm going to assume that most of you would say, even if you're just kind of checking out church, that you would say yes, yeah, so you're open to the idea. Okay, open to the idea of that there is a spiritual good being out there. What about a spiritual evil being? Is, is that reasonable that one exists? Uh, this is, uh, by the way, statistically where a lot of Americans jump off the bandwagon. Uh, around 90% of Americans believe in God, that there's a good spiritual being, uh, but only 57% of Americans believe that the devil exists. Now, that statistic in and of itself doesn't have a lot of reason to it, right? If it's reasonable to have one, it's certainly not any less reasonable to have the other. Uh, as we've uh, been going through the book of Luke uh, this year in 2018, our passage this morning uh, once again mentions spiritual evil and demons. Now, as much as uh, some of you would like to, uh, we, we just cannot escape this topic in the Gospels. Uh, when you go through the narrative of Jesus' life, he seems to encounter, whether we, even the that, that weirds us out, right? It's just in there. It's in the Bible. And he seems to encounter demons all the time. So as we kind of walk through a book of the Bible, we're just going to continue to keep seeing this. Now, Jesus doesn't think that there's a demon behind every bush, as a lot of people do nowadays. But for Jesus, our broken world is an intertwining of a whole lot of different things. I actually find this is a really helpful verse. So I'm going to throw up Matthew chapter 4, of verse 24, and I'm going to show you something in it. Now let's just leave it up there even for a minute. It says, News about him spread, that's about Jesus, all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. He's going to list a couple of things here. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now notice, Jesus didn't look at every single person and say, you have a demon, right? No, he believed that some people truly just had physical issues. Some people had psychological challenges. But there were others that he believed truly had demonic issues. And so as uncomfortable these passages make us feel, we still need to be open, because Jesus was open, that some things just require a spiritual solution. Okay, let's take a look at our passage for this morning. Uh, there's a Bible under every chair if you want to follow along. We're going to be on page 840 in Luke chapter 8. Uh, or you can use the uh, Renovation Church app. You just have Bible excuse me, and uh, uh, weekly verses. And so, uh, last week of you here, Jesus had just calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and this next story is going to happen literally as he walks ashore. So we're in Luke chapter 8, and we are now at verse 26. Uh, here's what it says. Excuse me, a little under the weather today. Okay. Uh, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. And of course, that's where Jesus met him. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, 
he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came back out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from the demons who had gone out, excuse me, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Okay. So there's a lot in here. We're going to try and unpack a lot of this today because I think there's just a lot that we can pull out from the word of God. So you got this man, right? He's demonized. He's, he's crazy. Uh, apparently at some point within the town, they had tried to place him in some sort of jail, some sort of confinement, but he had this supernatural power that he breaks away and he's just kind of been living, roaming around naked up on the tombs on the hillside of the Sea of Galilee, right? Nobody went near this guy. But Jesus is unafraid. So Jesus just walks right up to him. He says, what's your name? The guy says, Legion. Now, a legion was a unit in the Roman army. So uh, throughout the centuries, the number of people in the legion kind of varied, but typically it was somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers were in a legion. And so commentators believe that it's possible that this man literally had thousands of demons within him. Now, before you go, how's that even possible? We've got to remember that we don't even know a fraction of 1% about what is spatially possible in the spiritual world, right? Uh, perhaps all of these demons had assembled together knowing Jesus was on his way or something, right? We don't, we don't really know. But they're no match for Jesus. Like, think about this. There are, most likely, thousands of demons, of spiritual evil beings present. And all Jesus says, and you see this in one of the other Gospels, he just says, go. And bam, they're gone. Thousands. By the way, that's the same sort of spiritual power, because if you're a Christian, Christ lives in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, that's the same sort of spiritual power that you have access to over sin and darkness in your life. Right? Don't forget that. So Jesus sends the demons into a herd of pigs. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I, you know, I've read this story before, and whenever I read the story, when I picture it in my mind's eye, I'm always picturing like 40 pigs just you know, kind of stampeding off the cliff into the Sea of Galilee. But when I was studying it this week, one of the things that I came across is in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells this story as well, and he gives us a, another detail that Luke does not, and he tells us that there are actually 2,000 pigs in the herd that stampede off and drown in the Sea of Galilee, which actually kind of makes sense, right, with what we were just talking about. You have thousands of demons to influence 
thousands of pigs. But nowadays, a lot of modern people, particularly a lot of Western people, object to the story. And what's the objection? It's what about the, the pigs? Right? A lot of people object to this when they read this story. What, what, what about the, Why would Jesus do such a thing to innocent animals? It's a, it's a good question, especially for our culture. I, I think there's a lot of cultural filters that we've got to sort through if we're going to answer that question, it's really on both sides of history. Uh, we first have to understand what Jesus' followers thought about pigs. Uh, let me give you some context of where they are. So take a look at this uh, wonderful map. Amen. Okay, so uh, Jesus is doing most of his ministry right here in the region of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee. And so they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee over here into the region of what's called the Decapolis. That's Greek for ten cities. So they cross the Sea of Galilee, here's the storm, into the Decapolis. Now the Decapolis is not a Jewish region. And so there aren't really Jews that live there, as evidenced by the fact there are 2,000 pigs. I don't know if you know this about Jews or not, but Jews don't eat pork. Right? So this, this is not a Jewish area. right? Because the old, in the Old Testament, pigs are declared to be unclean. We get to the New Testament. Now, uh, Jesus, thankfully, uh, declares all foods uh, clean, uh, with the exception of broccoli. So, think... (laughs) So, it's actually not true. Okay. So, think about the situation, right? Uh, From the disciples' perspective, right, they're in this region. All the pigs die. To the Jewish disciples, moving impure spirits to impure animals actually to them, is a logical judgment. To them, the death of animals is worth saving even one person. See, when you, when you study the Bible, the eternal soul of a person is worth infinitely more than an animal. But for all, our culture, that isn't always the case. I remember, did you see in the news uh, this summer, they had a story of, there were these guys in Africa and they were, po- they were rhino poachers, you know, and they're trying to just get the, the parts and sell them, and they, they kill a rhino. Well, they, they broke into some preserve, and while they were in the preserve, they were attacked by lions, and they were mauled to death. They were killed. And I remember seeing a number of people in particular share it on social media, and they would share it, you know, kind of with some uh, sprinkling confetti, like, <laughs> they're dead, right? Serve, and then usually the caption said something like, serves them right. Now listen, if you love animals, that's, that's great, right? Good for you. But animals are never more important than saving a human soul from hell. So why would, I mean, why is Jesus so demonstrative here? Why send them into the pigs and not into just Nowhereville, right? And some of that, again, spiritually, we maybe just don't even understand how it works. But really his main reason is to demonstrate to the spectators and the whole town that comes out what really happened. That yes, this man was possessed. He wasn't just mentally challenged. Okay, so let's imagine that you were there, right? You're out walking along the hillside on the Sea of Galilee for a leisurely walk. I'm sure that's beautiful, right? And all of a sudden you hear 2,000 pigs just stampeding off into the lake. And you just come running. And eventually, you see this man, like the town maniac that all the kids had nightmares about. 
he's actually dressed now, thank God, right? And, and he's in his right mind. And somehow through conversations, you put it together that it was Jesus who's responsible for all of this. What would you say to Jesus? Now, if you hadn't read the story, you would think that the people would come out and they would say something like, wow, you uh, teach us about God. You must be the son of God or something. Please come to our town. You can stay at my house. And typically this is how Jesus is received in the gospels, but not in this town. I think to me, uh, the most fascinating verse of this entire passage is verse 37. Look at it again. It says, Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. Because why? They were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. Listen, you, you can reject Jesus if you want. But think about this. The Son of God shows up to their tiny little town, does an amazing miracle, and they say, get out. And he does. Okay, why would they? This is a good question for us. Why would they ever in a million years tell the Son of God, the Savior, to get out of town? Here's why. So often, I find that we are afraid of what God will do and demand when we surrender our lives to him. I encourage you to even write that down. Because I think this is true of the human spirit. We're afraid, honestly, of what God is going to ask of us, what he'll demand of us when you truly surrender. So they see Jesus do this miracle. They're overcome with fear Why? Because they actually rightfully identify that Jesus is so authoritative, he's so powerful, that if they were to let let him into their town, let him into their lives, that they would have to rightfully surrender to him, to his authority in their lives. They couldn't live like half for Jesus, half for themselves. And yet I think most modern people don't understand that about Jesus. Like if you think that Jesus is just a nice add-on to your life, right? Who can give you warm fuzzies, kind of answer some prayer requests when you need him to. You are sorely mistaken about who Jesus is. He is God Almighty. He is God incarnate. And his desire is to be an absolute authority in your life. Look at verse 35 again. It says, And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man who the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. One of the things they're afraid of is they're afraid of what they just saw happen to that man and the change they saw happen to him. They could see that if they surrender to Jesus, if they start following Jesus, he will change you. And honestly, they're not sure that they want. And I think a lot of people are like this. I remember when I came to Christ uh, when I was 18 years old, uh, some of the people in my life, they didn't like it. And they would say, I miss the old David. He was more fun and foolish, probably, right? 
I remember some people saying about my life, they would say, hey, just don't worry about it. It's just going to be a phase. Right? Then it'll all be over. See, the people aren't sure that they want to change. You know people like this? They're afraid to surrender. Because often as humans, we love our sin more than we love our Savior. And for a lot of people, that can be all sorts of sin. I suspect that the people of this particular town, that their root sin was greed. Or just relying on money for their satisfaction, to bring them happiness. Now, I know this may seem hard to, hard to believe for some of you, but these people are not raising pigs because they thought they were cute and cuddly. Right? This is not a hobby farm. The pigs were their financial livelihood. Actually, probably for a lot of people, if there were 2,000 of them. I heard one person say, this would be like, in present day, if Jesus exercised some demons out of somebody and then cast them all into a local family's car dealership, right? And they went into 2,000 cars, and the 2,000 cars drove off the cliff, right? So the people in the story, they weren't going, oh, because as, as Western people, we want to go, I bet they were thinking, my little piggies. No, no. There goes babe. And then like they had named them all or something, right? No, they're going, my money. There goes my money. There goes my livelihood. I'm ruined. Right? There's no pig insurance back in the day. But I think the intensity of Jesus regarding what life is really about is on full display in this passage. He wants your life. In fact, he wants all of it. And if you have to leave everything behind, right? if you have to lose all of your money, if you have to end all of your relationships to follow him, then you better follow him because he's that worth it. This is kind of like when Jesus meets the rich young ruler, which is going to happen later on in Luke. Uh, he, this young ruler comes up to him and he says, Jesus, I've dutifully kept all of the commandments. And then uh, this happens. This is Luke 18. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. You're going to see his money's in the way. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he, that's the rich guy, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And he decides not to follow Jesus. The people of the city are, are essentially doing the same thing. They have chosen their swine over the Savior. Right? Because they kind of know. If Jesus sticks around in their town, right, well, then there exists this risk of them losing even more of their pigs or even more of their livelihood. And if that were to happen, well, then Jesus better leave. They've chosen swine over the Savior. I just can't say that the Savior is worth infinitely more than their swine. I actually think God uses this illustration in real life on purpose because pigs are kind of an apt illustration. Anything that you're choosing over Jesus in comparison is like choosing swine over the Savior. I mean, nothing can compare to him. All the wealth in the world is not worth you rejecting Jesus. Nor is it worth you half-heartedly following Jesus either. I think in some ways, the people of this city are even more rational than those today who call themselves Christians, 
but they do not give Jesus absolute authority over their lives. Right? These people at least realize that if they were to let Jesus in, that means they'd have to fully surrender to him. And yet, I think there are so many American Christians nowadays, they want to have one foot in Christianity and kind of come into church and house groups and following Jesus, and they, they just totally want their other foot out in the culture living like the world does when it comes to greed, when it comes to sex, when it comes to just everything else. Now, there may be some of you in this room, you're just checking out God for the first time. You're just getting back into church. That's fine. Just keep, keep coming. That's awesome. But let me just speak to those of you that have been following Christ for a few years. You have to ask yourself, am I truly following Jesus as my Lord, or am I not? Are you willing to let him come in and give him full authority over your life? Or would you prefer to just kind of have it both ways? Have a little bit of what you want to do living in the culture and a little bit of Jesus? That's a question that every single person needs to ask. Because as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, you cannot serve two masters. Eventually one day you're going to choose. You're going to pick one or the other, the culture of Christ. On Friday of this week, I was uh, going through my, my email. I was kind of organizing some contacts and things like that, and I just randomly happened to come across an old Renovation Church email list circa 2012. And I started to look through it. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, there. You know, most of the people are still here. One, one of the things that, one of the reasons that this church has grown so fast over the years is hardly anybody leaves. Uh, you're actually trapped here now. Uh, surprise. Um, but I, as I was looking at this list, you know, six years ago, right? And so there were a number of people that aren't here anymore. And the majority of them had just moved away to different states and such. But I started going through like, no, no, I'm pretty sure they're still in the area. They're not here and, 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 and they're not here. And, they're, and person after person, it was almost the exact same scenario. They were people that had a foot in both worlds. Right, they, they, they liked Jesus. They're kind of interested in following Jesus. But they really like looking like the culture. And they really like just following their flesh. But eventually push came to shove. It always does. And they picked sex over Jesus. They picked chasing money over Jesus. They picked identity in their career over Jesus. They chose first and foremost to live under the authority of those other things rather than Jesus. But why would they do that? Why would anyone do that? I'll tell you why. It's what we had on the screen earlier. They were afraid. They're afraid of what God will do and demand when they surrender their lives to him. I'm just putting it out there honest for people today. We are afraid. I think that's why most of us kind of sit on the fence when it comes to Christianity. We are, the, we are afraid of the cost of following Jesus. And there's some of you in this room, you're on the fence about following Christ in the first place. You're like, I don't know if I'm really going to follow him. There are many of you in this room that at some point in your life, you embrace Christ. You said, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow him. But really, honestly, the last few years of your life, you've just been kind of on the fence, refusing to surrender fully to his authority in your life. Because you know 
that if you do so, it will cost you. It will cost you the ease and convenience of your current life. But that is the cost of discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says so many years ago. Jesus says this, Luke 9.62. says, Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow, you're saying, I'm going to serve Jesus, and looks back, right? Like, I'm going to serve you, but I really, but I, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You can have swine or you can have the Savior. But if you're always just trying to get both, you're going to get probably nothing. You follow Jesus, you'll get what you need. You know, I was trying to just think of this in my own life this week. So I've been, I've been trying to follow Jesus for 18 years. And probably like most people in this room, uh, sometimes I do that admirably. Uh, sometimes I do that embarrassingly so. That's just kind of walking with Christ, right? But I've found that every time that I say, no, Jesus, um, that's too hard. I'm not going to follow you there. I'm just going to follow my flesh instead. Sorry. Every time that I do that, I never get what I want. I'm never satisfied. I'm never full. But every time that I say, God, I'm going to give this up to you. I'm going to surrender this to you. And I think that it's going to feel awful. Right? Because that's how we feel. Like, if I truly say no to my flesh, I, sur- I feel like it's going to feel awful. But every time that I do it, I find that it's worth it. It is so worth it. See, my flesh tells me to fear surrender. My flesh tells me to fear his authority. My flesh tells me to fear his demands. But I keep learning that my flesh and the devil are liars. I don't need to fear walking under the authority of my loving Savior. I find that when I actually surrender and I walk in his will, that's when I come alive. But when I walk in my flesh and I just keep saying, no, I'm not going to live under your authority. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to do what the culture says. That's the thing that just sort of slowly kills me. See, every year that I sort of progress in my maturity in Christ what I'm actually truly beginning to fear in my life is following the culture, is following my flesh, is following my sin. That's what's actually going to give me what I don't want. So if you're here this morning and, you, and you've just kind of been on the fence, right? you've been playing both sides, accept the grace of God today. Right? He knew about it. That's why he went to the cross for you. He loves you. But you just need to tell him today, I'm going to trust you. But I'm not going to ask you to leave. I just want to bow to you. I want to follow you. Now, there's one more thing in this passage that I, I just think we can't miss. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a different direction, but I just think there's so much here. And given that we are, you know, seven, eight days away from Christmas, I, I, I just want to look at it. So just look at verse 38 and 39 with me. It says, The man from the demons, from whom the demons had gone out, begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Right? This is what God wants you to do when he moves in your life. He wants you to go home and tell what he's done for you. Are you doing that? 
Uh, see, I, I believe every single one of us in this room has a great opportunity in the next seven or eight days with Christmas on the horizon to go home and talk to your parents, to your siblings, to your cousins, to the people in your life that don't know Christ. Tell them what he's done for you. Right? Don't, don't, don't live for your earthly reputation and comfort and say, no, I just, no, I couldn't. That's too. Right? The, again, that's just choosing our swine over the Savior. If, if it's an easier beginning for you, just invite someone to come with you to church next weekend to a Christmas service. Uh, we're going to give you one invite card on the way out today. My challenge is you take that and just pray for one person for the next seven days. Like, we need Jesus' heart for people. Contextually think about this. Okay, why did Jesus cross the lake? Now, this is not a joke. Like, why did the chicken cross the road? Why did Jesus cross the lake? To save this man. He went through the storm to save this man. What will you go through? What will you sacrifice so that someone can get saved? But this is the focus of Christmas. I was just thinking about this last night. We just miss it. So many of us, we miss it every year. I fall into this, right? You, you, you get going with Christmas, and you're like, uh, here you are, just on Amazon, spend another couple hundred dollars, and I'm going to buy for this one and this one, and, and then i got to go to this party and this gathering, and it's all just sort of like, uh, that's, I'm just going to tell you straight up, that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about the birth of Christ coming to earth so that he could save our souls. Like this is what, this is, that's the thing that our celebrations need to be. That's the epicenter of our celebration. So for some of you next week, you even need to just align your schedule so that you're here to celebrate. And more importantly, you, you align your schedule. And maybe that means you need to adjust what service you come to so that you can bring somebody with you who can be saved, who can hear the good news of Christ. And please don't write anyone off. We do this, I think, especially with our family. You go, you, you, maybe you're even picturing someone in your head. You're like, yeah, I'm going to see them on Christmas. You know, but the, <laughs> oh, man. they are never, they would never, ever, ever follow Jesus. I would just ask you, this person that you're thinking of in your head, are they right now up on the hillside of the Sea of Galilee running around naked in the tomb screaming? Then they're not too far away for Jesus right? He can do anything. So God just wants to use you. I mean, think about this guy, right? He begs to go Jesus. He's basically asking, can I become the 13th disciple? (laughs) Like, can I get in the boat and go with you and just hang out with all these other Christians? Because think about it. Where's the last place on earth that this guy probably wants to go? Back to his family. Back to his hometown, where all he's known at is, is the town maniac. He'd rather go hang out with all the Christians. So he pleads with Jesus, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no. Go home. Go to the people that need me. Right? They're afraid of Jesus, but they accept this man. And he goes home, and he begins sharing his testimony. Mark tells us that he shares all around the Decapolis, the ten cities. In fact, we see at the end of um, Mark 7, Jesus comes back to the same region, and this time... The people are saying, come to us, come heal our sick, teach us. Why? Because this very man right here went home. He went back into the darkness where people need the light. And God used him to prepare a whole region for Christ. And this is how Jesus overcomes evil. With the gospel. But it's not with money. You don't overcome evil with political power. 
You don't overcome evil with hatred. You overcome evil with the gospel. You see, at the end of the book of Luke, we're going to see Jesus essentially taking the lowest position of all. In a sense, it's like he's traded places with this man. Think about this. As they lead Jesus to the cross, he's now the one who's bleeding and crying out. He's now the one who's been naked and is naked and stripped of his clothes. He's now the one that's been driven to the tomb. And Paul says in Romans 12, he overcomes evil with good, with sacrifice, with surrender. We change, by, we change the world not by putting ourselves first, not by kind of dabbling in Jesus, but staying in the culture. We change the world by surrendering to his will, and surrendering to him. Let's do it. Let me pray. Lord, uh, as we just think about this idea of just fully surrendering ourselves to God, to you, I know that for all of us there's so many fears that come to mind. But God, I just pray through your spirit that you would guide us and comfort us to know that if we surrender to you, God, that you are a good, good father that you are kind, that you are gentle, and that you are trustworthy. May we just trust you with our lives. So in your name we pray. Amen.